Chapter 18 of The Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter 18. Crude were the surroundings where Carmu turned out some of the best monoplane pilots America will ever see. There were two rude shed hangars in which they kept the three imported Berloits, a single-seat racer of the latest type, a Berloit 12, passenger-carrying machine, with the seat under the plane, and the Petite Marie, the school machine, which they usually kept throttled down to four or five hundred, but in which Carnot made such spirited flights as the one Carl had first witnessed. Back of the hangars was the workshop, which had little architecture, but much machinery. Here the pupils were building two Berlorite-type machines, and trying to build an eight-cylinder V-motor. All these things had Bagby given for the good of the game, expecting no profit in return. He was one of the real martyrs of aviation, this sapless oldish man, never knowing the joy of the air, yet devoting a lifetime of ability to helping man sprout wings and become Superman. His generosity did not extend to living quarters. Most of the students lived at the hangars, dined on hamburger sandwiches, fried eggs, and Mexican enchiladas served at a lunch wagon anchored near the field. That lunch wagon was their club. Here, squatted on high stools, treating one another to ginger ale, they argued over torque and angles of incidents and monoplanes versus biplanes. Except for two unpopular aristocrats who found boarding-houses in San Mateo, they slept in the hangars, in their overalls, sprawled on mattresses covered with horse blankets. It was bed at eight-thirty. At four or five, Carmo would crawl out, scratch his beard, start a motor, and set every neighborhood dog to howling. The students would gloomily clump over to the lunch wagon for a ham-and-egg breakfast. The first flight began at dawn, if the day was clear. At eight, when the wind was coming up, they would be hurt in a workshop adjusting and readjusting, machining down bearings, testing wing strength, humming and laughing and busy. A life of gasoline and hammers and straining arm temps to get balance exactly right. A happy life of good fellows and the achievements of machinery and preparation for daring the upper air. A life of very ordinary mechanics and of sheer romance. It was a grievous hearsay that aviation is most romantic when the aviator is portrayed as a young god of noble rank and a collar high and spotless, carelessly driving a transatlantic machine of perfect efficiency. The real romance is that a perfectly ordinary young man, the sort of young man who cleans your car at the garage, a parasitically real young man, wearing overalls faded to a thin blue, splitting his affinitives, and frequently having, for idle, a bouncing, ingenue, should be a rickety structure of wood, and, pyrrhical, be able to soar miles in the air, and fulfill the dream of all the creeping ages. In English and American fiction, there are now nearly as many aeroplanes as rapiers or roses. The fictional aviators are society amateurs, wearers of evening clothes, frequenters of the club, journalists and civil engineers, and lordlings and international agents and gentlemen detectives who draw 
Oh, yes, I fly a bit. New sensation, you know. Tired of polo. And immediately thereafter used the airplane to raid arsenals, rescue a maiden from robbers, or a large ruby from its lawful but heathenish possessors, or prevent a zeppelin from raiding the coast. But they never by any chance fly these machines before gum-chewing thousands for hire. In England, they absolutely must motor from the club to the flying field in a powerful Rolls-Royce car. The British aviators of fiction are usually from Oxford and Eton. They are splendidly languid and modest and smartly dressed in society, but when they condescend to an adventure or to a coincidence, they are very devils, six feet of steel and sinew, boys of the bulldog breed, with a strong trace of hummingbird. Like their English kindred, the Americans take up aviation only for gentlemanly sport, and they do go about rescuing things. Nothing is safe from their rescuing. But they do not have Rolls-Royce cars. Carl and his class at Bagby's were not of this gilded race. Carl's flying was as sordidly real as laying brick for a one-story laundry in a mill town. Therefore, being real, it was romantic and miraculous. Among Carl's class was Hank O'Dell, the senior student, tall, thin, hopelessly plain of face, a drawling, rough-haired, eagle-nosed Yankee, who grinned shyly and whose Adam's apple worked slowly up and down when you spoke to him, an unimaginative lover of dogs and machinery, the descendant of Lexington and Gettysburg, and a flinty Vermont farm, an ex-fireman, ex-sergeant of the army, ex-teamster, he always wore a khaki shirt, the wrinkles of which caught the grease in black lines like veins, with black trousers, blunt-toed shoes, and a pipe, the most important part of his costume. There was the round, anxiously polite Mexican Tony Bino, called Tony Bean, wealthy, simple, fond of the violin, and of fast motoring. There was the school grouch, surly Jack Ryan, the chunky ex-chauffeur, there were seven nondescripts, a clever Jew from Seattle, two college youngsters, an apricot rancher's son, a circus acrobat who wanted a new line of tricks, a dull ensign detailed by the Navy, and an earnest student of aerodynamics aged forty, who had written marvelously dull books on air currents, and had shirkingly made himself a fair balloon pilot. The Navy ensign and the student were the snobs who lived away from the hangars in boarding-houses. There was Lieutenant Forrest Havlin, detailed by the Army. Havland, the perfect gentle knight, the well-beloved, the nearest approach to the gracious fiction aviator of them all, yet never drawling in affected modesty, never afraid of grease, smiling and industrious and reticent, smooth of hair and cameo of face, wearing khaki riding-breeches and tan puttees instead of overalls, always a gentleman, even when he tried to appear a workman. He pretended to be enthusiastic about the lunch wagon, and never referred to his three generations of army officers. But most of the others were shy of him, and Jack Ryan, the school grouch, was always trying to get him into a fight. Finally there was Carl Erickson, who slowly emerged as star of them all. He knew less of aerodynamics than the timid specialists, less of practical mechanics than Hank O'Dell, but he loved the fun of daring more. He was less ferocious in competition than was Jack Ryan, but he wasted less of his nerve. He was less agile than the circus acrobat, 
but knew more of motors. He was less compactly easily than Lieutenant Haviland, but he took better to overalls and sleeping in hangars and mucking in grease. He whistled ragtime while Forrest Haviland hummed McDowell. Carl's earliest flights were in the school machine, Petite Marie, behind Carmo the instructor. Reporters were always about talking of impressions, and Carl felt that he ought to note his impressions on his first descent, but all that he actually did notice was that it was hard to tell at what instant they left the ground, that when they were up the wind threatened to crush his ribs and burst his nostrils, that there must be something perilously wrong because the machine climbed so swiftly, and when they were down that it had been worth waiting a whole lifetime for the flight. For days he merely flew with the instructor till he was himself managing the controls. At last, his first flight by himself. He had been ordered to try a flight three times about the aerodrome at a height of sixty feet, and to land carefully without pancaking. And be sure, monsieur, be very sure you do not cut off too much high from the ground, said Carmo. It was a day when five reporters had gathered, and Carl felt very much in the limelight, waiting in the knuckle of the machine for the time to start. The propeller was revolved. Carl drew a long breath and stuck up his hand, and the engine stopped. He was relieved. It had seemed a terrific responsibility to go up alone. He wouldn't now, not for a minute or two. He knew that he had been afraid. The engine was turned over once more and once more stopped. Carl raged, and never again in all his flying did real fear return to him. "'What the deuce is the matter?' he snarled. Again the propeller was revolved, and this time the engine hummed sweet. The monoplane ran along the ground, its tail lifting in the blast, till the whole machine seemed delicately poised on its tiptoes. He was off the ground, his rage leaving him as his fear had left him. He exulted at the swiftness with which a distant group of trees shot at him. Under him he turned, and the machine mounted a little on the turn, which was against the rules, but he brought her to even keels so easily that he felt all the mastery of the man who has finally learned to be natural on a bicycle. He tilted up the elevator slightly and shot across a series of fields, climbing. It was perfectly easy. He would go up, up. It was all automatic now, cloach toward him for climbing, away from him for descent, toward the wing that tipped up in order to bring it down to level. The machine obeyed perfectly, and the footbar for steering to right and left responded to such light motions of his foot. He grinned exultantly. He wanted to shout. He glanced at the barometer and discovered that he was up to two hundred feet. Why not go on? He sailed out across San Mateo, and the sense of people below running and waving their hands increased his exultation. He curved about at the end, somewhat afraid of his ability to turn, but having all the air there was to make the turn in, he headed back toward the aerodrome. Already he had flown five miles. Half a mile from the aerodrome he realized that his motor was slacking, missing fire, that he did not know what was the matter that his knowledge had left him stranded there, two hundred feet above the ground, that he had come down at once, with no chance to choose a landing place and no experience in gliding. The motor stopped altogether. 
The ground was coming up at him too quickly. He tilted the elevator and rose, but as he was volplaning, this cut down the speed, and from a height of ten feet above the field the machine dropped to the ground with a flat plop. Something gave way, but Carl sat safe, with the machine canted to one side. He climbed out, cold about the spine, and discovered that he had broken one wheel off of the landing chassis. All the crowd from the flying field were running toward him, yelling. He grinned at the foolish sight they made with their legs and arms strewn about in the air as they galloped over the rough ground. Lieutenant Havlin came up, panting. All right, old man? Good. He seized Carl's hand and wrung it. Carl knew that he had a new friend. Three reporters poured questions on him. How far had he flown? Was this really his first ascent by himself? What were his sensations? How had the motor stopped? Was it true he was a mining engineer, a wealthy motorist? Hank O'Dell, the shy, eagle-nosed Yankee, running up as jerkily as a cow in a plowed field, silently patted Carl on the shoulder and began to examine the fractured landing wheel. At last, the instructor, Monsieur Carmot. Carl had awaited Monsieur Carmot's praise as the crown of his long fright. But Carmel pulled his beard, opened his mouth once or twice, then shrieked, "'What the devil you think you are? A millionaire that we build machines for you to smash them? I told you to fly three times around. You fly to Algiers and back. You think you are another farming brother? You are a damn fool. Suppose your motor, he stop, while you fly over San Mateo. Where you land? In a well? In a chimney? Ain't? You know nothing yet.' Next time you do what I tell you, Zut. That was a flight, a flight to make a flight. That was fine, fine. You make the heart to swell. But next time you break the chassis and kill yourself, mon du tonnerre, I scold you. Carl was humble. But the courier reporter spread upon the front page the story of marvelous first flight by Bagby Student and predicted that a new Curtis was coming out of California. Under a half-tone ran the caption, Erickson, the new hawk of the birdmen. The camp promptly nicknamed him the hawk. They used it for plaguing him at first, but it survived as an expression of fondness. Hawk Erickson, the cheeriest man in the school and the coolest flyer. End of chapter 18